0: Some of you got an email from me this morning just highlighting just two more reasons why you should show up tonight. Dwight Smith is preaching tonight. It's wonderful to be able to welcome him. He preached this morning at Missio as well. You know, I don't want to understate it, but at the same time, I you know, don't want to overstate it, but at the same time, I don't want to understate it, that this man has been extremely instrumental in the DNA the philosophy, uh, the principles that undergird all that we are doing and seeing God do, really, in central New York, in the planting of Missio and now the planting of Renovation. Uh, Jordan has often called him the father of the movement here, at least what God is doing uh, here in this, in this city through Missio and Renovation and others. So I don't know what that means about renovation. Does that mean you're like our grandfather Uh, to to what we're trying to do as uh, Missio is a a mother. But, you know, Renovation Church has a name for a reason, and it's those renovation principles. Whatever God is going to do in the world, he's primarily going to do through all of Christ's people. That's the teaching and what what God has shown Dwight Smith. And also through leadership uh, that seeks to empower Christ's people toward that end. And finally, a decentralized structure. All this about missional communities and why that's our primary instrument in discipleship and mission. That's all come from the, the thinking and the experience of a man that I'm excited to welcome here tonight to preach with us. So let's give Dwight Smith a hand as he comes, and, uh, and uh, also maybe even we'll offer up a prayer for him as he comes. Let's, let's pray for this brother. Father, we thank you for Dwight and uh, his heart, in his, his teaching and really his influence uh, and his care uh, for what you are doing in this place. I pray that you would give him focus, the ability to teach us well, being faithful to the Scriptures and calling us to whatever you're calling us to in it. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.
1: Good to be with you. Uh, my wife is in the city with me, but um, we celebrated our 46th anniversary today. Of marriage, and so uh, she chose to stay home. And am I going to argue with that? <laughs> I wouldn't argue, even if it was only twenty or ten or whatever. So she is back, resting and uh, having a good time of quietness on her own. You know, uh, it's good to be here and to observe what's happened. I was at the, you know, if you if you were thinking in biological terms, you might say I was there at inception, uh, and actually pre-inception, if I could, if I you know use, be so bold as to say that. I remember when Missio was born uh, I was in a hall down in Florida uh, in Estero, Florida and um, I was, had been conducting about a year-long uh, series of connections with I don't know, hundreds of uh, hundreds of churches down there. Well, weren't the hundreds but you know, tens and tens and tens. I don't know how many were in the room. 50, 60, 70 guys in the room and that was about the second or third time I had done that in terms of series. So a lot of guys had. A lot of men and women had come into contact with that and I was was just finishing up and maybe I was just on a break and somebody said to me, can you go talk to Jordan? And I said, sure. And uh, you all know Jordan, right? Yeah, 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 you all know. I'll, I'll know Stenziano. And um, I was in the hall and, and Jordan, Jordan was crying. You don't believe me, do you? Yeah, Jordan was crying. And he was saying to me, I really feel like God's called me to go back to uh, the country of my, or the city of my upbringing. And you know he was born and raised here. And uh, I really would like for you to give me as much effort and time if you'd be willing to. And I promise that I would do everything you told me to do. And so that was, I mean that had to be at least eight or nine years ago, right Jim? That was before Jim had even agreed to go. So it is great. It was great to be there this morning and to see uh, the number of people that have gravitated to that vision and to know that you're out here and there's another group that meets by the university and there's five or six other ethnic churches that are being influenced by you guys as as the, the world has sent you populations from all over it to find life here. So it's good to be with you. You know, uh, when I think about uh, the world, I've spent most of my life in it. My wife and I have been in better, better than 70 countries in the earth, and we've lived in multiple places around this earth. And as young people, we were missionaries in Columbia, South America. As I look at the world from the 30,000-foot view, view, if I can call it that, there's never a better time to be uh, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. When we first went to the mission field in 1973... We were um, a generation of uh, people who had gone out for uh, close to 250 to 300 years from countries all over Western Europe and then starting in the late 1870s and the 1890s out of America, of every denomination, going to places around the world where they felt God was calling them to take the message of reconciliation to God in Jesus Christ. And so in 1973, when Patty and I went out, we were just one of tens of thousands uh, in fact, 25, in, in the 25 years between 1950 and 1975, which one man has dubbed the unbelievable years, something in excess of almost 50,000 people went out from America in post World War II. So we were just a, in, in a long train of people. And by the time we got there, the, 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 the general accepted feeling of this task in the world was still in place. That yes, God has called us to the world and it's not been easy. We've sacrificed many lost children, many died Um, in the early days, in the 1800s, in the early 1900s of uh, the missionaries going to Africa. It was not uncommon to pack all your goods in a a coffin because the probability was that you would live three or four weeks and you'd die because there'd be something out there you'd catch and that'd be it. And we're not going to ship you back. You're just going to be buried there. So in 73, when we went out, there was that still that sense, let's call it that the, glass is, the glass is half empty kind of feeling. Uh, that God called us to go. We expect great things to happen. We believe that this, this redeeming gospel needs to take root in all these places. Uh, but it's been tough. We might say the glass is half empty. But what I think a lot of people didn't understand is that hundreds and hundreds of years of faithfulness by a lot of people was about to give birth to unprecedented numbers in harvest. Numbers that are just so off the chart. We look today and we wonder, wow, what in the world has gone on? Now, we all know that that's what we should have expected and we should have believed, but it's almost as if in spite of the facts, you almost can't believe it. And the country we went to, Columbia, South America, you go there today and some of the largest Evangelical Protestant churches in the world are there of tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. Latin America itself easily exceeds 100 million followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm just talking about Protestant, not Catholic followers. In the year that I was born, more or less, 1948, uh, over 250 years of missionary effort in China came to an end with communism coming into the country and taking things over. Um, there was a sense in which communism said, we've got to get rid of this. The seed of any believability of religion needs to be stamped out, so we're gonna, we're gonna get rid of it in one one-year one effort. And pastors were killed, thrown in jail, churches were um, confiscated, burned down, turned into other things. Uh, all the missionaries were turned out from the country And uh, everything was dispersed. And I'm sure that communism felt that that was the end of Christianity. We don't have to deal with that silly thing anymore. When that happened, there were about 4,000 believers in that country, 3,000 of which were Catholic, 1,000 of which were, uh, pardon me, million. 3 3 million of which were Catholics, 1 million of which were Protestants. And I think that all over the world there would have been this this sense of, yep, it's over. What are you going to do? But the seeds of sacrifice and planting were about to come to fruition. By the the mid to late 70s, when our then-president, Richard Nixon, went into China, things began to filter out that between those years, which was barely 25 years, something close to 25 million people had become followers of Jesus Christ. Today we know China has about 80 to 90 million people, who can confess to be followers of Jesus Christ. My lifetime. You know, I I do a lot of historical reading on a lot of levels, and I know that a lot of people went out over the world, and with the same sense of optimistic expectation that I had at 22 and 23, it'll all be great, this is super, I don't care what happened, it'll be different for me. But they didn't experience that in the same way. I first went to India in 1985, and when I went to India in 1985 there were about 25 million Christians in that country. Uh, History would give some sense of warrant to the fact that the Apostle Thomas first went to India, the southern part of India, in the first century, and so Indians would say we've had 2,000 years of Christian history. And there are some long historic, large historic churches in the southern part of India. But after, they would say, 2,000 years, not quite, but something, we'll give it a ballpark, there were close to 25 million Christians. But the population of India in 1985 was close to 850 million. And we also knew that there were about 110, 115,000 churches in the country. 57 men got together. I was just a young punk following some other godly guys who said, Hey, we're going to drag you out to Asia. Um, and I was still cutting my teeth on all the understanding of that and they gathered with 57 key Indian leaders who simply asked the question, is God done with India? Is that it? Are we done? we we done it again? Does he not want anything more from us? At that moment, after several days of prayer and fasting and gathering, they said, no, we don't believe God's done with India. We believe that that every man, woman, and child in this nation deserves a repeated opportunity to come to some sense of knowledge of the message of this book and make a decision, yes or no, against it. Repeated, incarnational, real decision about who he is. And then the second question, well, if if that's what you're going to do, what's going to (laughs) change? You know, been doing something for 25 years, for 2,000 years, and that hasn't produced it. What's going to change? And so the second question was, you know, how would God do this if he wants to do it? And they decided that the most obvious way to reach their nation was to see a a believing group of people in close geographic proximity to every man, woman, child in the country. Which in in statistical or numerical uh, senses would mean 1,000 to 1,500 people in the midst of every 1,000 to 1,500 people, there would be a group of believers. 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, whatever. And and, 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 in rhetorical sense, that would be a church in every village, in every neighborhood, in every colony of every city. And they knew that when they said that, that meant that they were committed to plant 1,000, pardon me, 1,000,000 new churches in that nation. Now, they went back home, and most of those guys are gone in heaven. And they left guys like me behind to say, okay, now you guys figure it out. For the next 15 years, i traveled back and forth to India many times, ultimately trained a group of guys who trained almost 50,000 church planters and missionaries and uh, indigenous missionaries in that country. I go back now regularly uh, with a whole new generation of young people. Most of those men are in heaven, and their children are there rhetorically, spiritually. But today, when I go back to India with this realization, in my lifetime, the Indian church has become the singular singular largest church of Christian history. Something close to 150 million people inside of that country proclaim to be followers of Jesus Christ. That is the singular largest population of Christians in any nation, including America, that we have ever seen in Christian history. And there are something close to 600,000 churches. So we might say, and I often, ask, I often wonder that, I mean, why my, why my lifetime? Why am I not still sitting here at you saying, well, there's still a big job to do. But in point of fact, there are more people who have become followers of Jesus Christ in the last 30 years than have in the total 2,000 years since Jesus left this planet. Now, that's the view from 30,000 feet, but America doesn't live at 30,000 feet anymore. We live at something less. And both a- Europe, where we've lived for a time in America, are suffering something different. And let me read a couple comments before I then open Scripture and just talk to you a little bit. The drag of postmodernism and the opiate effect of consumer- commercialism has resulted in a culture of unrestrained narcissism and hedonism in our nation. It's almost as if, having been born into that, they don't have to be instructed. It's all about me, and I want it now. And that affects every bit of sociology. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. That affects every venue of sociology. When it's all about me, then it's not really about you until I want want it to be about you. And it may never be about you. And when I want it now, it means that, hey, you can get behind me in line. I want it now, no matter what it costs me. Now, that's where we are in terms of an unrestrained kind of narcissism and hedonism. But that same culture has many dulling effects on this culture of Christianity because it is inherently hostile to biblical Christianity. And it's invaded unguarded Christian lives in the life of the church. So when you talk about me first, it's many times no different in a church. And we talk about, you know, it's all about me. That same thing has invaded the church. I feel as if what we're discovering at this point is that we're living in a time of testing. You see, when I grew up in the inner city of L.A., and my father was a pastor, last English-speaking pastor of what was a Hispanic neighborhood we were more or less about 50% of the population. We knew that. Europe was about that too. Most of Europe is, was about 50% Christian in every nation, whether it was Catholic or Protestant. There was this high population of people who were culturally Christian. I realized realize that. What they really believed, you know, only, only God knows and time will tell. But they were confessing Christians. So, so that had an impact, on, an impact on the culture. But today, even as you meet, now this morning most of them met all over this nation, Less than 10% of people in America are in a church today. And so you've seen a massive turnaround between, between my lifetime of 50 years ago and today of, of, of the sense of urgency people feel to gather in a place called a church. Now I'm not going to argue with that's right or wrong. I'm just, that's a stat. That's a reality that we have to deal with. That we are no longer um, a cultural relevancy in this nation. If there ever was a battle for morality, it's been lost. It's over with. And our numbers are so declined and declining that the same kind of impact that I grew up in will not be had by your generation. But what I think that's happening here, and I want to give you optimism after this, is that we are living in a time of testing. And, and, And it's fair for some of this testing. I'm not trying to criticize this testing. I just want to say, I think we're living in it. We're living in a time when the world is testing our words against our lives. You say this, but you're doing this. You know, you don't look any different than me. You know, they look out, they look out, and you know, in the Catholic world, they look out on the priest and they say, "Mm, I'm not sending my kid there. But it's no different in the evangelical Christian world. They look out, "Mm, you know, I'm not sending my kid there unless you've vetted every person that goes through there and you've checked their background and and you watch them closely with a camera. I'm not sure I'm going to trust you either. So that sense of you have said so many things, but there's so many discrepancies of life, I don't know if I believe you. Now, that's also true in everything else. I mean, how many of your governmental leaders do you actually believe the inconsistency of life and practice to confession is true across the board in this nation. But it's more damaging for Christianity because it says it lives by a different standard. And yet it seems to have crumbled in the practice of that standard. So we're being tested. I think the church is also testing God's word against their desires. I mean, the frustration for a guy like me when I used to be in a a local church was that how often did I hear, I I really understand that's what the Bible says, but. So, well, you understand that that's what God says, but now you're saying to me, but. What does the but mean? The but means I'm going to do what I want to do. All right, I have no problem with people who question this book. But don't tell me that you're going to live by the book, or you believe the book, or you believe it's God-breathed and inspired, and then tell me you're not going to, you're not going to try to live within the, the boundaries, very grace-oriented boundaries, that it advocates. These are not laws. These are, these are fundamentals to the enrichment of life, God says. Live it this way and you live it joyfully. Live it that way and you will be self-damaged. So don't be surprised. So we are testing the fundamental conviction. And I think a part of it has been the intellectual drag that we think has convinced itself that it has proven everything in here wrong. And yet time always seems to erode these convictions. That these men or women think they have about who God is or wasn't, what he isn't. For hundreds of years, archaeology has said, well, that didn't happen. And all of a sudden, some little yahoo shepherd finds a, a whole pot full of bunch of shards. They open them up and they discover, well, David did, really did exist. But for all kinds of years, the archaeology didn't exist, so I don't know. This is a bunch of hooey. Give it some time give it some time, and see what happens. Out of a book that's not a scientific book, it is amazing how many things rise from the very nature of the mystery of the genius of God, as He calls Himself. Now, if people don't want to accept that, I have no problem with that. But for us who say we accept it, but not to live within its boundaries, becomes a a fair inappropriate behavior for the world to look at and say, mm, I don't know. And even for us to begin to wonder, mm. do we really? And then thirdly, I think we're te- that we're being tested and that God is testing us against what we say and what we do. I'm very cautious. You know, and maybe this is somewhat OCD. But I am very cautious about what I sing in a service like this. I refuse to be required to sing words that I'm not prepared to make a commitment about at this very moment. Let me go home and think about that because that's a heavy duty commitment. I want to make sure that at some level I'm thinking about my life lining up with those things. Well having said of all that, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know? well, Let me give you some thoughts that I think for me are encouraging from the, from the book of Matthew, from the mouth of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. Let me just read the first part of it, and then I'll make some comments, and we'll go home. It's called the Beatitudes, and you remember that. It's the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And the very introduction to the first part is actually the Beatitudes, or the Blesseds. Or, as I think we should look at that, is Jesus sort of saying, Hey, here's what my people look like. Here's what the world looks like. Here's what you look like. And so he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus in a very just short descriptive ways used some powerful uh, language to simply say, here's a snapshot, that's my people, <laughs> that's what they look like. And, um, and I like to sort of say, to bring it into, into strong relief, it seems to me, if the world's writing the Beatitudes, here's what it's going to say. Blessed are the wealthy, for they possess the earth. Blessed are you, if you are a part of the 10 to 12% in America who own, I don't know, what is it? 50% of the wealth of this country? Blessed are you. Because you've got more toys than everybody else. Blessed are the happy, for they, only they really enjoy life. Because life's always about being happy. and so if, there's, if you're not happy, there's something wrong. Well, we got a pill, we got a counselor, maybe we have some fun. Because blessed are the happy. Blessed are the aggressive, for they inherit the fullness of the earth. You don't ever want to give in to the fact that maybe you're not aggressive, because if you're not aggressive, maybe somebody will get it before you. Blessed are those, he says, blessed are, are the aggressive. Blessed are those who hunger to possess, because they're never full. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they show no mercy. Show mercy? Huh. That's all over. Show no mercy. It sounds rhetorical, but that's what they mean. Show no mercy. Blessed are the corrupt, for they really don't care about seeing God. They just want to get ahead. Blessed are those who sow division, for they are the sons of man. Divide and... I don't care. Blessed are the self-protected, for theirs is their kingdom. Blessed are you if you always are liked, for that is what worldly relationships are absolutely for, to be liked. So if you sort of take these and play the game of turning them around, it becomes the the opposite snapshot from the words of Jesus. Blas Pascal, who wrote many years ago in a book called The Mind on Fire, says those who indulge in perversion tell those who are living normal lives That it is they who are deviating from what is natural. They think that they are following a natural life themselves. They are like people on a ship who think that it is those on the shore who are moving away. So Jesus turns it all upside down in just a real quick form. Let me give you what I think Jesus means by these blessings. Number one, he says, blessed are those who recognize their need. We are a needy people. Every one of us has holes in our life. And so he says, we're a needy people, poor in spirit. Blessed are those people. Because they're able to, number two, mourn for their lostness. They care about not being that way. And so they mourn for their lostness. And therefore they're quiet before God. They're meek. And as a result of all that, they hunger to be made whole. That's what righteousness is all about. That's the sad thing about Scripture. People think that that righteousness is illegality and doctrinaire, doctrinism, but it's not. Righteousness is holism from God's point of view to be restored to the wholeness for which He made us. And that's what righteousness describes. They give mercy, they have pure motivations, they're pure in heart. They promote peace because they are peacemakers. They're harassed for being whole because people don't like to be around whole people. I'd rather know that you're weak like me. Now I feel good about you. And if you're weaker than me, I I really feel good about you. But they're harassed for being whole. And then finally they're rejected because of their allegiance to Jesus. But maybe more importantly, and that's the words I really want to focus on now, just for a couple minutes. Why, Why is this so important to us, to you, as you live in the midst of this community here? You live in a place where, as I understand it, maybe 1,500 people actually go to a Protestant church in the city. And maybe 15,000 go to a church in this greater area. It means at some point where lots of people would have gone to a, uh, a Catholic or a Protestant or a Lutheran or a Methodist church, ain't many people going anymore. You live in the midst of that. Now, what those people ultimately do with their belief... Uh, uh, listen, I, I'm not... I'm not going to worry about that. That's their decision. But the fact that they make decisions unaware of something that may be eternally important is important to me. And so when Jesus looks at his people and then he looks at us and he says to us this morning, there's three things I want you to understand about why these people are so important. And the first is this. They are the salt of the earth. It's just a metaphor, but you have to think for a minute, you know, what, what is it about salt? And there's a lot of things we could say about salt, but one of the things that I think is most distinctive of salt is that it adds flavor to things. And so if you ask the question, what does it mean that we who are the people of God are the salt of the earth? I think it's this, that in the midst of a world of suffering and difficulty and diversion and, and disconnection and, and aggression and all the things we could talk about in this world, we're a reminder that man was created in the image of God. And the true humanity derives its sense of humanity from the divineness or it's easy to trash. Listen, you're not going to play that game with me. 350 million Americans can play a game of discussion of this. But having traveled all the world, I see what it looks like when the dignity of, of man that has been given by the divinity of God is ripped away, how people will treat each other. It is absolutely incomprehensible things that one person will do to another or a group of people will do others. It's incomprehensible. And you say, how do they do that? Why would they do that? Well, they don't have a conscience. No, it's deeper than that. They do not ascribe humanity to those individuals. And therefore, they, because they, can't, they do not ascribe humanity, it's okay to destroy them. They're not of any value. You see that in India, where the caste system absolutely affirms the fact that if you are not born in this caste, you're born in that caste. And because you're born in this caste and not that caste, you have no soul. So you deserve what you get. And I am not going to make it easier for you to get anything else. Now, I'm not after casteism. I'm just simply saying that is an expressive way to see what it means. Beheading a man in the name of a religion is easy to do if you believe that that man has absolutely no human redemptive value. Once humanity loses the consciousness of divinity, that is, we are created in the image of God, if we're just a cosmic burp, that evolved from animals, then be very careful that that does not degenerate into the loss of humanity for some people. It becomes easy to go from that to the way we treat people in the world. But Jesus says to us, no, 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 no. You are an incarnational reminder that I created humanity and ascribed to it That sense of dignity that comes from that creation. Take that away and give me another reason to believe that you are of value. Except I give you value because I want to. And when I don't, I don't want to. We are the salt of the earth. We're the reminder of the image of God in a marred world that is losing that sense of of the dignity of humanity that God gives. And and one of the dignity is choice. That's why I never want to argue with people about faith. The very fact that we're created in the image of God means that we have a choice to choose for or against. You can say yes, you can say no. It's totally up to you. The dignity of choice comes from the divine creation. And you and I are meant to be, as he's described that, The salt that reminds the earth that there is a greater criterion for humanity than just survival. And then he gives a warning. Be careful. That when salt loses that flavor, it's good for nothing but to throw on the ground in in wintertime and walk on. It has no flavor anymore, so who cares about it? Throw it out there and maybe it'll stop us from falling but it does not have the same redemptive quality that it had. You know, to me, that's, that's why the, the Christians are still important to America. Even if we're only a small percentage, we're still a restraining of an insanity from my point of view. The insanity of the lack of any sense of human dignity. And when we get irrelevant, when we become totally irrelevant, who knows what happens in this society. So we are a reminder, the incarnational reminder, that the image of God is placed in man. And now it's been reborn through the birth that we have in Jesus Christ. Second, he says, you're the light of the world, a city on a hill, A lamp that can't be covered. Very simple little metaphors, but powerful. And what he's saying, I think, is this. You're the reminder that there's something else of value in this world. A sense of hope. I mean, that's what light is in the middle of darkness. You're you're traipsing through a bunch of villages and it's pitch black and all of a sudden there's a light out there that gives you hope that you're headed in the right direction. We're a reminder that this world is not all there is from God's point of view. But there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is an eternity, there's a promise, there's a bank, there's an investment, there's a place waiting. God says we weren't made for this world. This one's so distorted and so, and so damaged to his own image that to allow it to continue to exist forever would be cruelty from God's point of view. But with the redemption that he says he offers in Jesus Christ, he then says, but there is another world coming and that world is going to be populated only by righteousness, when the flesh and all of its dread gets cast away and we leave this body behind, that one gets unleashed from all of this. And so as we live that, we remind people that there is hope. That there's, a, there's something out there that is more important. Now we don't try to tell people, only live for that, and so ignore this. That's what salt is all about. Salt is connected to this, but hope is connected to that. And those two are juxtaposed together so that there is both meaning and there is destiny. And, and the message of that meaning and destiny is you. The ones who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who do believe that there is a hope beyond it. So two weeks ago, one of my best friend's wife died of cancer after a year. Of, hey listen, don't bat an eye. That the struggle was over for her and she's in eternity. It'll be pain for him and his family. But, but even he knows he did not bury her in desperation. He buried her in hope. And then third he says we're truth. We're the truth of the kingdom. And let me just read it and then I'll make a few comments and shut up. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Look at Jesus says I didn't come to get rid of this whole Old Testament. I'm not here to totally deconstruct Judaism. It says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. Until everything that God has said in that law is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. We are, we are an incarnational demonstration of this truth, that righteousness has nothing to do with your butt sitting on that chair today. Righteousness has nothing to do with sacramentalism. It has nothing to do with you listened to me talk for a half hour. It has nothing to do with membership of a religious group. It has nothing to do with even doctrinal confession. It has everything to do with an infused righteousness that comes to those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and have been born again into him. Crucified, buried, and resurrected, Paul says in Romans. Coming up new people. The righteousness of the Pharisees was just do it harder. Give more money. Be more legalistic. Be more faithful. Come more often. Be more religious. Jesus says that's irrelevant. It's the birth of the heart that God is concerned about, not the conformity of the flesh externally. And so we are the incarnation of... To all of the world that, listen, I'm not talking to you about a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a, a Catholic or anything else. I'm talking to you about the righteousness of God infused into his children. That demonstrates life, that projects hope, truth. That, that lives in us as we make choices. You are the salt of of the earth not the religious leaders not even the buildings you and everywhere you go salt goes everywhere you go light goes everywhere you go some incarnation of the truth of righteousness goes because you start to make choices different that's what the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount's all about they're dramatic choices the world says you got an enemy hide from him hate him get away from him Jesus says, you got an enemy, pray for him. The world says, if somebody does you wrong, get back at them. Jesus says, look, ignore it. He asked for one cloak, give him two. He asked for one mile, give him two. Don't let this random stupidities bother you. And on and on through the whole Sermon of the Mount. Jesus takes it all and just turns it upside down. Righteousness gets turned upside down from religious righteousness to infuse divine righteousness that looks different from the world because it's to be a refraction that the world can see and make a choice. Make a choice. You are. The one admonition I'd like to leave you is this. is The warning that Jesus gives back up in the salt metaphor when he says if it loses its savor it becomes useless. I realize that we've lost leverage in this nation. Now we haven't lost it in the world. There's something close to four billion people on this planet who confess to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's the majority. At least it's a big, big, significant minority if you want to call it less than 50%. And it is. But it's a huge number of people. But in this nation, I refuse to be made irrelevant. They can dislike religion. That's fine, I do too. They can criticize church. Hey, listen, I know more about what's wrong with church than they'll ever know. But I refuse to be made irrelevant to righteousness. Righteousness. And if that means persecution, so be it, because it will also mean salvation for some. As they reappraise that concept and reevaluate their lives and ask questions that someday they will have to ask in eternity, if they believe there is one. And if they don't, they'll be surprised. But you and I have to decide that we will not be made irrelevant. And that irrelevancy is made when we make choices that are not consistent with the truth. Not legalistic truth, birthing truth, free truth. My, my life is not obsessed and, 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 and chained down because I live by the boundaries of this book. It's clean and pure and holy. I'm still married to the same woman 46 years later. Mark that up to the world. I have, a, I have four children who are living whole and complete and healthy. And 11 grandchildren who are walking in the joy of two parents who love them and care about them. Mark that up to the world. And so we are that salt, that light, that truth. I commend you that your size, big or small, doesn't change anything. Because the power of the message is you, not the building. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. God bless you. Father, we thank you for the time together. Thank you for this word. Thank you for Jesus, who's not afraid to speak truth in a very compassionate but compelling way. May you use that among these people, your children, to glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.